This morning we're going to be in Genesis 2. There should be some excitement over that. We got out of Genesis 1. We're only going to be in Genesis 2 for one week, so don't worry. Of course, as I was uh, working through the text and all of these things are coming to my mind, I'm like, oh my, how am I going to say all of that? And uh, ended up adding a few sermons from some texts that uh, show the implications of some of what we're going to be talking about today and some of it that's there that we're not really going to address this morning. So uh, hang in there. All right. Genesis 2, verses 4 through 9 and then 15 through 25. Hear the word of our God. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Down to 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. God bless the reading of his word this morning. Join me in prayer. Father, we live in a world that often rejects your word and sometimes twists it for its own very different agendas than the one you have for your word. And so we live in a strange time when it comes to this topic of marriage. I ask that you would firm up the truth in our minds, that you would help us to get a better handle on it, that our marriages might like look more like what you have intended them to look like. Not only that, but to help us to be able to gracefully talk with others about marriage. Be graceful to us 
on account of Jesus the Messiah, who has saved us. Amen. We do live in a time where there's a lot of confusion about what marriage is, and we see sort of this redefinition, this reconstruction of marriage taking place in a number of different ways and on a number of different levels. It's not just government trying to possibly redefine marriage, but how people think about marriage and have thought about marriage for the last few years is very different. In fact, I think there's been a large separation between what we've thought about marriage and what Scripture says about marriage for quite some time. And now we're just starting to see the fruit of it. As marriage falls apart in lots of chaos. There's confusion. And I see this confusion represented in the songs of our day. When Jaden was just a child, well, yeah, younger than she is now. When she was two, I used to sing, I think it's from the Spencer Davis group. I'm a man, yes I am, and I can't live without you, babe. And and she would always go, again? And I'd sing it again, and and I'd sing it very loudly, and you don't want to hear that. (laughs) Again, again, again. She, For some reason, she loved to hear me sing that little phrase of a song. Phrase of another song, a very different song, comes to me. Bono. When When he sings, a woman needs a man. Like a fish needs a bicycle. Think about that for a moment. Does a fish need a bicycle? We've gotten to this place where marriage seems to be so strange. That we seem, we seem to think that it is so unnecessary and such a burden and such a strange thing. But scripture teaches us something completely different about marriage. Marriage, in fact, our big idea this morning is that marriage is in reality a dynamic picture of the gospel, of Christ's relationship with his people. That's why marriage is so important. That's why we ought to respect it so. Let's look at this as the text unfolds initially. And we see that, first off, that man was made for a mission. Genesis 2 is a retelling of creation from a different perspective, a different angle, a different emphasis. It's going from the big picture down to the small picture to focus on some things. And it's very interesting because we find in verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And that little phrase, this is the account in Hebrew, is toledot. And what's interesting, at least to people like me, is that that is a phrase that is found throughout Genesis. It marks off the different sections of Genesis. This is the account of. You'll see that repeated often in Genesis. And what follows is not the story of the heavens and the earth, but what follows is the story of what becomes of, or what comes from the heavens and the earth. And at first you might be going, what's that got to do with Adam? Hang on a minute, because it's there. It starts off with sort of this, this problem that exists in that there is no one there to work the garden. It talks about how there were certain plants that were not there. Now, of course, remember from day three uh, that God created plants, but there were certain things that were not yet created precisely because they needed a human being. They needed someone to work the ground. And the phrase that is used in the Hebrew implies this idea of grains. In other places where it's used, it's grains that that require people to till them, 
to tend them, to care for them. So this is, this is not saying that there were no plants. Okay, this is not denying what happens in Genesis chapter 1, but it's showing us the need for someone to work the garden. There was a man that was necessary. And so God formed the man, and he formed him from the dust. He formed him from the muddy clay. It says he took him from the ground. The Hebrew word there, oddly, is Adama. Okay? Man, humanity, Adam, is a shortened form of Adama. And it points to the fact that we are from the earth. We're from the ground. And so when it, it starts off saying this is the account of the heavens and the earth, well, yeah, <laughs> Adam is of the earth. But he's not just of the earth. All he was was this lump of clay and dirt and stuff that was kind of shaped until God breathed life into his nostrils. He was not a living being until God breathed into him. So he's not just of earth, but he is also of heaven. And what follows is a story. The true story of a man and a woman. But we see that Adam, man, was created with a mission because the very first thing God does is he takes Adam and he sticks him in the garden and gives him a job. Till the land. Work it. that interesting to you? It should be. How many of us think work is a drag? I, I, usually, I like most of my job, but... But we, we have this idea that work is part of the curse, and we see that here work comes before the curse. And before the curse, it was good, it was right, and it's because of the curse that we kind of struggle with our work, particularly men, who are the ones who work outside of the home more often than women. But we see that Adam, as the man, was created with the mission, and God gives him the job, and that's why... Uh, Mark Driscoll, pastor of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington, often says uh, to the single women, make sure he's got the two J's. He needs Jesus, he needs a job. If you're going to marry somebody, make sure you got those two things. Otherwise, don't even think about it. Okay? And all the single women have left. <laughs> Tell them that. <laughs> single guys. Those are the two things that you should have before you seek to marry a woman. Make sure you can provide for her spiritually and financially. So, anyway. What he is called to do is he is called to serve or worship work. The garden. It is interesting because that is the word for worship in places. It depends on the context. But it could also mean to serve. He is to make the garden productive so that it provides for his needs. It's not like all of these fruits and vegetables are just going to appear magically. Adam needs to work. He needs to make it more than it currently is. Not only that, but Adam is tasked with watching over it, which has this idea of guarding something. Keeping it from danger. There's a little bit of foreshadowing going on here. Ought to hear the sinister music in the background. Not quite Darth Vader, but close. Okay? Something's going to happen in the next chapter. It's going to happen because Adam fails. 
because he's not watching over it. He's not exercising the care that he needed to exercise over the garden to make sure that the serpent did not arise. But here we see Adam, tasked. He wasn't just plopped in a garden so he could lay back in a hammock and enjoy cool drinks on the heat of the day. He's given a job, meaningful labor, that will help provide for his needs. And so we see here covenant provision and prohibition taking place. We see a lot of the elements of the making of a covenant taking place in this chapter, even though there is no blood. If my daughter was here this morning, I'd say, Jaden, what's a covenant? And she would go, it's a bond between two or more persons. And if I was standing before Presbytery and I was asked, what is a covenant? I would probably have to say, it is a bond in blood instituted by God. That's what a covenant is. We see the making of a covenant here. Because God gives him the provision of the garden. He gives him all of the trees of the garden, the fruit of which he can eat. He says, but there's one you can't. And that one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else is yours, but this one thing. And now how many of you... When you heard that, thought, man, I want that one thing. (laughs) Yeah. He wasn't in that state yet. He didn't have that default that went to that yet. We hear this and we go, oh man, something held back. Think of all God gave him. How gracious his provision. Had Adam earned any of it? No. It's all of grace that he has received these things. One rule, lots of grace. But the penalty should frighten us. For the phrase here is basically, dying you shall die. That's that's what it is in Hebrew. The death sentence. It doesn't mean that God was going to kill Adam on that very first day, but it means that you are under the sentence of death. And in fact, that every sinner that walks the face of the earth is a dead man walking. That's all of us, apart from Christ. Dead men walking. But this delay between the sentence and the execution makes us think that it's not going to happen. We, we think that there is no penalty for our disobedience. Right? Isn't that what t- tends to happen? Remember, think back when you were a kid. What happened when you got away with something? You started to think you could get away with it again, didn't you? That's what we do as sinners, as we start to think that we can get away with it. Because we got away with it one time. Because God's justice was not immediate, we think that maybe He's not going to take care of that, and we can sort of get away with it. That's why many people heap up sin after sin, because they think God does not see, because God has not yet judged them, because they do not look at Christ and see that sin has been judged in Christ. Okay, so man was made not just for fun. Man was made with a mission. Marriage was also made for the mission. Let's see how it plays out in the Scripture here. God makes his very first negative assessment. It is not good that man is alone. Now, when we hear that, we immediately think, like Adam sitting alone in a corner going, Oh man, who am I going to talk to? Is that what we think? That God is somehow assessing this 
outside of the context that we've been looking at with Genesis 1 and what we're going to look at in the rest of Genesis 2 and think that basically Adam is just lonely. He's in the corner wondering what, who he's going to talk to and who he's going to share his day with. Well, you know, I had a hard time tilling today, but I got no one to talk to except Fido over there. Okay? That's really, I don't think, the context, the idea that Scripture is getting at here. He is alone, meaning he is unable to fill the earth. And unable to fill the earth, he is unable to subdue the earth. Unable to subdue the earth, he's unable to rule it. Adam can't do what he was intended to do because he's alone. And so while marriage provides companionship, while marriage does provide a release for our sexual desire, while marriage does provide for the making of children to fill the earth, while marriage does provide financial stability for families, All that is tied up by the idea of mission. But what happens is we start to isolate these things and think that marriage is only about one of these things or two of these things, and that is why our culture is in such a mess. Because we've taken it out of this context of God's ultimate mission for us through the creation mandate and then later now through the Great Commission, and we've just made it about companionship or we've made it about sex, or we've made it about finances, or we've made it about whatever. And marriage was never intended to bear the weight of our idolatrous dreams. It was never made to do that. No person was made to to bear the weight of your idolatrous dreams when it comes to marriage either. They cannot be everything for you, and they were never intended to be everything for you. Well, God looks around, so to speak, in the midst of this mission fail. God's solution was one who helps, a helper, one who's suitable for him. But what happens is it's not there yet. Sort of think of my wife, and I think that she's a very suitable helper for me. Um, and yet there was a long time where she wasn't there yet. You know, I didn't know her. I had to wait. And so Adam is in this time of having to wait. And so what God does is he brings all of the animals before Adam. Now, okay, yeah, God didn't think that one of these would be a suitable helper. Okay. But he's going to produce probably the longing in Adam for something else, someone else. And so God brings all of the animals before him and he examines them. And what he does is he names them. And what what we saw from Genesis 1 is that God named things revealing his authority over them. Adam is revealing his authority under God over the animals by naming them. Not Fido, but dog. Giraffe. Hippopotamus. That's what he's doing. He's revealing his authority over them as he names them. Did he notice them pairing off, that there were two of them and just one of him? We don't know. The Scripture's silent on that, and some have argued that point. And, okay, that sounds all right, but you know what? I can't really hammer that home because that's speculation. 
But we do know this, no helper that was suitable for him was found. And so God puts him to sleep. To remove a rib and to fashion from that rib, again, that sort of, okay, how we understand that. But we're dealing with God, not a doctor. And God makes a woman as a helper corresponding to Adam to help him fulfill the mission that they now would share. God provides again. She is of him and she is for him. What happens when God presents a woman to him? I'm a man, yes I am, and I can't live without you, girl. That He breaks out in song. He probably sang a lot better than I do. But he's so filled with joy and wonder. This is the first recorded creation of culture. It's a poem. And it's the palm and the mouth of the first man ever. And it is filled with praise and joy. Because he has finally found the person to help him. But what does he do in that poem? He names her. She is woman. Isha. Because she has come out of man. Ish. Related to, connected to, from. And yet, we see, we see the, the building, one of the building blocks of male headship in the, in the family. And he names her. He takes responsibility for her in this process. That's why we change names when people get married. That's why Amy DeGrote is no longer Amy DeGrote. She's now Amy Cavallero. Because she's come under my protection. She's come under my responsibility. She's come under my authority as her husband. We still sometimes reflect that. We have, up until recently, reflected that reality of the change of name reflects this change of authority and responsibility that takes place. But it is here in the text that if we were watching this as a DVD, someone would press pause and you'd hear the voice of the narrator come on. The action would stop. And Moses says, Therefore. He gives the implications of this event that has just unfolded before our eyes, and he tells us that it is for this reason that a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his wife. Moses is saying, this is why marriage takes place. Right here. And part of what takes place in marriage is first, he must leave. It's not about geography. It's about something else. He has the idea of departing, to to, to loose, to go away, to abandon. He is to leave the provision and authority of his parents. Because he is about to establish his own family of which he will be the head. And so before he can do that, he must leave the provision and the authority of his parents. Okay? And then he must cleave. One of those words we're never really sure what it means since a cleaver takes meat apart. Um, but to cleave has the idea of to cling to, stick to. 
with this idea of affection and loyalty. And so what he's doing is he is establishing a new family that is tied together with affection and loyalty. His priorities have shifted. His, his ultimate priority is no longer the parents, the family he grew up in. It's not to his parents anymore. His ultimate priority is loyalty is to his wife. And when you don't get that, you get lots of problems. This is true for both the man and for the woman. If there's no leaving, there's problems. Okay? You're not in it together. You're not allies together. You're just companions. And when you don't like the terms of the deal, you leave. That's part of what has happened in our culture. We have not gotten this idea of loyalty that is foundational to marriage. That there are going to be unpleasant days. In fact, there will be unpleasant months. And sometimes even unpleasant years. And yet, there is a loyalty in this new family. So both spouses must transfer their loyalties and their responsibilities. My wife told me what her parents told her when we got married. They said, okay, that's it. You you can't come home anymore. Meaning, you're on your own now. If you're having a problem with him, don't think you have refuge here. Unless, obviously, I'm doing something that's sinful. Okay? But just because we disagree on something, she can't just run home to mom and dad. They cut off the door, so to speak. It's good of them. I thank them for that. What happens is that the two become one flesh, the picture of union. I mean, I'm here. Is Amy, like, connected to me? Like, stuck onto me? No, it's not pointing to a physical union but it is pointing to a spiritual union that takes place. That now we are united. We are one family. We are together in everything that happens. And what happens to one of us happens to both of us. Whether it's health issues, job issues, raising kid issues, it happens to us. Not just me or not just her. Us. Because we are one now. And so marriage provides this partner, it provides this ally in the mission that we have been given. So marriage is not really an end in itself. It's not intended to ever be an end in itself. But what happens is, as I said, it ties it together. And mission usually precedes marriage, providing purpose and stability for the marriage. So marriage, we find here in Genesis 2, is an institution created by God to fulfill the mission that He has given humanity. But we don't have just Genesis 2. There's something greater at work. Marriage is a metaphor for Christ and His church. That's the third thing I want us to look at this morning. That marriage is a metaphor for Christ and His church. There's more here than meets the eye. It's not just about a man and a woman together. It's not just about them filling the earth, subduing and ruling the earth. That's true, but it's not enough. It's not the whole story. Because Paul in Ephesians 5 quotes this. And he does something that we didn't expect with it. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This, he says, is a profound mystery. Guys in Sunday school, what does mystery mean? Right, we only know because it's revealed in the Word. And he's about to lay one on us right here. I am not, uh, sorry, I am talking about Christ in the church. What? The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sees that there is more going on in Genesis 2 than meets the eye, and says that not only does this apply to a man and a woman, but it's really pointing us to the reality of what happens between Christ and the church. It's about the gospel. As I said in Sunday school, all roads lead to Christ. If you're in the the Westminster Confession or if you're in the Scriptures, all roads lead to Christ. And marriage is a road that is intended to lead to Christ. Because it's a picture of His relationship with the church, His people. He has made His bride, the church, His primary concern. Ephesians chapter 1, what does He do? He is the head over all things. For what? For the church. He rules history for the benefit of the church because he has allowed, allied himself with this people, his bride. He works all things for the well-being of his bride. That's his loyalty. He's, in a sense, left his father's house. Didn't he leave the house of the father? To come and get his bride. He's made His bride His primary concern. And we are united with Him. We are... We've talked about union with Christ in Sunday school the past couple of weeks. Our loyalties and affections are supposed to lie with Him. We are spiritually united to Him by the power of the Holy Spirit if we believe in Him, if we trust Him. And yet, maybe it's just because I started reading Hosea in my own devotionals. We're just like Homer's wife. Uh, sorry, Hosea's wife, Gomer. I can suck them together. We can't do that. We're promiscuous. Our hearts go after other things. I was listening to Ray Ortland Jr. Uh, talk about worship and idolatry, and he kept going back to marriage, and he said that one of the things that really turned the corner for him in understanding who he was and how much Christ loved him was finally coming to the to the conclusion that he is a whore. His term's not mine. That he's an idolater. That he's guilty of spiritual adultery. How deep the Savior's love for us. That though he knows what we will do, he set his affection and His loyalty upon us. And He continues to care for us though we go astray, though we wander. And He always brings us back. Sometimes He brings us, as it says in Hosea, out into the wilderness so that He might speak tenderly to us. 
But because we belong to Him, He comes and gets us when we go astray. He chases us down for our own well-being, for our own good. That's how it relates to us. Let's step back for a moment and relate it back to the culture in which we live, the world in which we live, Tucson, Arizona, right? We talked about before how people's view of creation is a door to the gospel. Well, people's understanding of marriage is another door to the gospel. If we believe really that marriage is a metaphor for Christ and the church, then as we engage people and and listen to what they think marriage is supposed to be about, it opens a door for us to present the gospel. To tell them what the Bible says about marriage. And ultimately, our marriage to Christ as His people. So, all roads in this world God has made will bring us back to Christ because He made it. And it reveals who He is and His Word reveals what He has done to bring us back into a relationship with Him. To deliver us from the false gods. Like Buddha and Allah and all that other junk. He saves us from the deceptions that exist. He can use anything to do it. Here we see that marriage, discussing marriage can be a door to making known who Christ is and what He has done to make a people for Himself to be His bride. Be looking for those opportunities. They will come because most of the people around you either are married, have been married, or hope to be married. Right? And they will talk about marriage. And we can talk about Jesus in the midst of marriage. Why don't we pray? Oh. Father, we thank you that marriage is not merely a social contract or a social construct. It's not something that we made. In fact, I can't even imagine why we would have made it. But it exists because you have made it to exist to reveal to us something about Jesus and his people. And so help us. Help us to grasp this. Help us to recognize the ways in which we have been short-sighted in our own understanding of marriage. Forgive us for the decay into selfishness that our marriages sometimes experience. That instead of picturing Christ in the church. We need your Spirit to continue to change our hearts. We need Him to redirect us and to empower us. In some cases, we might need Him to convict us of going down the wrong path. And so I ask that you would grant us a greater sense of the mission that you gave to us. That you would help us to fulfill that mission. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the Savior and Sanctifier of your people. Amen.